Hi there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I'll be your host today. My name is Linda Yin, and I am joined by laryngologist Dr. Aaron Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Linda. Perfect. And today we're going to talk about recurrent respiratory papillomatosis, otherwise known as RRP. And we recognize that this disease can affect both children and adults, but we're going to be talking about it sort of as a whole. Starting off with presentation, so what is the typical presentation of a patient with RRP that comes to your office, Dr. Friedman? So the presentation varies somewhat depending on the age of the patient that's affected, but in general, sort of hoarseness and breathing problems are the two main symptoms that I think about with patients with RRP. In children, um, the symptoms can sometimes be a little bit more nonspecific, chronic cough, and sometimes, you know, wheezing or other elements of respiratory uh, distress, strider sometimes as well. But in general, um, for most adults, voice issues are the primary complaint. Good. And we've already sort of started touching on this with uh, children and adults, but tell me a little bit about the epidemiology of this disease. You know, how common is it and what kind of population does it affect? So the disease itself is actually relatively uncommon, um, and there's some data to actually indicate that it's becoming even more uncommon as time is going on, and I'm sure we'll touch base on that. But effectively, sort of in children, the numbers are classified into what's called juvenile onset and adult onset. RRP, but we'll back up to the, the pediatric population, the juvenile onset. Incidence is somewhere in the neighborhood of about two to four uh, per 100,000 patients. And so there was a study, I think, done uh, about 10, 15 years ago that found that in the US that came out to be somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 800 new cases in the entire country. In adults, it's um, thought to be even a little bit more rare. So the adult onset versions, um, there actually aren't a lot of great studies out there looking at this, surprisingly. But the incidence, again, out of 100,000 is somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two. So again, very rare. And and we refer to this as a uh, orphan disease uh, in the context that it is very rare in in the general population. Gotcha. Now, even though it is rare, are there any identifiable risk factors that uh, we have for people getting this disease and risk factors specifically we should focus on when taking a history from a patient? Sure. So I'm I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit more, but the risk factors uh, mainly relate to ways of transmission of the disease. So uh, for instance, uh, this is a sexually transmitted disease through the human papillomavirus. And so a sexual history can be pertinent in uh, adult patients. Birth history um, as well is germane to the uh, pediatric population. Um, And that primarily relates to issues of whether the newborn was a, a firstborn whether there was prolonged labor, and in the history of the mother, if there is a, uh, any sort of history of anogenital warts. Great. And you know, after we take the history, now moving on to the physical exam, what are some features that, that you're looking for? And again, I assume most of this will be through a scope exam, but general exam as well, anything to pay attention to? Right. So as you indicated, um, a laryngoscopy is really key. 
but even sort of listening to the patient in terms of their breathing, in terms of their voice, um, those are things that you can pick up on that might give you some clue that a patient might have RRP. Um, obviously, if there's any sort of respiratory distress, you may pick up on elements of Strider. But sort of as you alluded, the diagnosis is really um, dependent upon a laryngoscopy. And that can be challenging, obviously, in pediatric patients, depending on the age of the patient. Um, but in adults, which is the primary patient population that I treat as a laryngologist, a flexible laryngoscopy is usually the examination of choice uh, when you're suspecting something like this. And in terms of what you might see, there is a predilection for the disease to be in the larynx and particularly uh, along the vocal folds. But the disease can actually affect any uh, mucosal surface of the upper aerodigestive tract. And so, you know, you may on occasion see sometimes even incidental, even in a uh, oral exam, but we can find them anywhere from the nasal cavity all the way down to the pulmonary parenchyma. Um, I've even had the experience of seeing it in the hypopharynx, and I'm sure that there are cases of this in the esophagus as well, too. When you perform an exam or when you take a history and uh, you see some of these signs and symptoms that uh, we already talked about, is RRP the only thing you think of, or is there anything else that should be on your differential diagnosis? Like I said, I think it's in the adult population, one of the things that, you know, some of the other diseases that can mimic RRP include cancers actually can look very similar. So squamous cell carcinomas of the larynx can look similar. And also precancers, particularly dysplastic lesions of the vocal folds can sometimes be challenging to interpret. So those would be the top two diseases that I would think of in terms of sort of a differential diagnosis. Um, in children, I think it can be more challenging again, because the ability to do a laryngoscopy may be somewhat diminished depending upon the age of the patient. Um, so there can be other pathologies as well that it might be mistaken for, um, including asthma, croup, laryngitis, those types of things. Good. Okay. Now moving on to the pathophysiology. So, and you know, from my rudimentary understanding, this is particularly crucial to, to RRP. So we've already talked about HPV, the human papillomavirus. And can you briefly tell us, you know, what HPV is and how it can lead to the development of RRP? So HPV uh, stands for human papillomavirus. Now I think there are close to 170 or 180 different viral subtypes of this disease. It is a sexually transmitted virus, and it's actually the most common sexually transmitted disease in the world. It's a DNA virus, and it has a particular affinity for squamous cells. The uh, different subtypes that we talked about are really divided into low versus high risk because the higher risk forms of HPV are responsible for cervical cancer, uh, certain types of oropharyngeal malignancies. Um, but the RRP subtypes are predominantly uh, 6 and 11. Those are also the uh, subtypes that cause anogenital warts. Um, and they are considered low risk because they, in general, do not uh, result in malignancy. So 6 and 11 are the viral subtypes that are responsible for the majority of RRP. And some studies have suggested that subtype 11 is a little bit more aggressive, but it's not definitive that that's the case. So we, we talked about HPV being an, a sexually transmitted disease, uh, but we also know that children can get it. Can you talk a little bit about the methods of transmission and how patients acquire the infection that eventually leads to RRP? Right. So the methods of transmission in children are primarily what are termed vertical transmission, so from the mother to the newborn. 
it's thought to occur at the time of birth when the child acquires it uh, while passing through the contaminated birth canal of the mother. The presence of active warts at the time of delivery uh, actually has been shown to increase the risk of developing RRP by more than 200 times. The presence of prolonged labor has been shown to, I think, about double the risk. And it's also a higher risk of transmission in firstborns. Nevertheless, even though these um, risks are increased, it's only about one in 400 newborns that develop it uh, in the context of being exposed to genital warts. The other thing that's sort of interesting is that um, there have been some studies finding that cesarean section isn't always preventative. And so there are some thoughts that there may actually be cases of in utero transmission. Interesting. So elaborating a little bit more on on the virus. So, you know, we did say that the high risk subtypes of HPV, uh, which we we know is an oncogenic virus, can can cause different types of malignancy. So for example, you know, HPV positive oral pharynx cancer, which is big in head and neck right now. But um, you mentioned that this is rare for RRP because of the of the serotype. Is, how rare is it? Is it not possible at all? Or is there still a potential that we need to think about? No, so I think the general rate that I believe is relevant is about a 2% chance of malignant transformation of, you know, quote, benign RRP into malignancy. And so what that really translates into is we see it more commonly oftentimes in patients that have had RRP for decades where the sort of cumulative risk goes up. So in the unfortunate few patients that do develop that, it's oftentimes patients who have had juvenile onset. RRP that sort of have the disease persist into adulthood and then in their adult lives develop um, malignant progression. Um, There are also cases of papillomatosis that are affiliated with the higher risk viral subtypes such as 16 and 18, and those would be more likely obviously to uh, progress into malignancy. Right. Now on histopathology, I understand uh, these lesions have a pretty distinct appearance. What do they look like? Um, So histologically, they are exophytic masses. They can either be sessile or pedunculated. And we actually see that even in terms of their gross laryngoscopic appearance during office and operative exams. If you look at sort of the the histological uh, level, there are sort of multiple fronds of these fibrovascular stalks uh, that are covered by stratified squamous epithelium. And there is thickening of the basal layer that's consistent with HPV infection. Um, And we know that that is the layer of epithelium that is targeted uh, by HPV. We also see a delayed maturation of that epithelium as well. And uh, because this is a disease that's caused by a virus, do we think about the immune system and how this might factor into the pathogenesis of RRP? Absolutely. And I think this is an area that we don't fully understand, um, but there is certainly a connection between the immune system and HPV. Studies show actually that HPV infection is actually quite common, meaning that most people um, actually do have an HPV infection, but they don't develop the phenotype of expressing the papillomatosis. And when patients uh, are immunocompromised, uh, there are case reports of papillomatosis of RRP in particular, um, becoming much more aggressive. And so the immune system, it's thought to be sort of a selective immune defect, um, but research is really ongoing into that. And it's sort of an area that at this point isn't really understood what that particular immune deficiency is. 
Now, moving on to workup. So, you know, a patient comes into your office with some of these signs and symptoms that we talked about that are pretty classic for RRP. What kind of additional workup do you need to conduct? So, in terms of workup, we're really looking at sort of the distribution of the disease. And as we talked about before, in the office of flexible laryngoscopy um, becomes key. As a laryngologist, we also will often perform a video stroboscopy to look at the effect of the uh, disease on the vibratory mechanics of the vocal folds. The disease can occasionally, as we talked about before, uh, spread more distally in the aerodigestive tract, particularly um, in the trachea or actually into the pulmonary parenchyma. So getting a chest x-ray is not unreasonable, but oftentimes you won't see much on a chest x-ray, but patients that have had RRP for you know long periods of time, it's not uncommon if you get a CAT scan of the chest to find uh, small evidence in the lungs. If Certainly if patients have dyspnea that is disproportionate to what you might see on a laryngoscopic exam, then I am I have a low threshold to get a CAT scan of the chest. And sometimes we will pick up sort of pulmonary parenchymal disease that was previously undiagnosed. But in general, I wouldn't say that a, a CT scan of the chest is, is a necessary component, though the flexible laryngoscopy becomes the main tool to perform the workup. And then obviously you need a biopsy uh, for diagnosis. Yeah. So, so what about the, the biopsy? Yeah. You mentioned, do you do that in the office and, and what are you testing for? Does it matter, you know, what subtype it is? Are you asking the pathologist to look at that? So a biopsy in the office is not unreasonable if it's going to change your management, but oftentimes if a new patient presents uh, with what you suspect is papillomatosis, um, you're going to go to the operating room anyways, because you will both obtain a biopsy and perform a treatment at the same time. So if it isn't going to change what you suspect your management is, then I often don't perform them in the office in adults. Um, it's not to say there aren't exceptions to that. I think in children, obviously, it becomes much more challenging to perform an awake biopsy in the office. And so that would generally be performed uh, in the operating room. And one of the things that I wanted to back up now, and I'm thinking a little bit more about it too, is that you know you would presumably perform a biopsy if you are concerned about some other pathology. We talked about the differential between, for instance, squamous cell carcinoma and papillomatosis. But one of the key things from an exam that often can help differentiate that is the distribution of the disease. If you see multiple areas, particularly in the larynx, that are involved with normal intervening tissue, it makes the diagnosis of something like malignancy much less. Um, in general, malignancies don't skip around, whereas the distribution of RRP is often multifocal within a given organ system and, and within the larynx in particular. Now, if patients with RRP, if they were to receive no types of treatment at all, what is, in general, the natural course of this disease? So the natural course really depends on time frame. But in general, the disease will obviously not involute spontaneously, and it will sort of continue to grow. And the rate that that occurs is quite variable from patient to patient. But in general, if patients present with dysphonia as their primary complaint, you would expect that to worsen over time. At some point, the airway can become restricted, obviously, and in children, that is much more likely to happen, just the small caliber of their airways. And so in that context, the natural history is to have breathing problems, and ultimately, it could be uh, fatal. But in general, like I said, very few folks don't treat this disease once it's identified. When you do treat it, what are your goals for treatment? 
you know, we say the term treatment, but really it's management because we don't have a cure. We can't cure this disease in any known reproducible way in every patient. So management is really sort of the better word. And that relates to sort of preserving voice quality and also uh, breathing. So in that context, the treatment is directed towards improving those two symptoms. And there's different ways to do that from a surgical perspective and also uh, through adjuvant therapies as well, too. Now, focusing on surgery, so when surgery is performed, is it is it always done in the operating room under general anesthesia, or are there you know smaller procedures that you can manage in the office, and what do those look like? Right. So surgery, or I should say debridement of papillomatosis, is generally done, at least initially, in the operating room, number one, particularly if there's no diagnosis because you can perform a biopsy. But certainly once the diagnosis has been made, and if there's extensive disease in the larynx, it often makes sense to treat that in the operating room under general anesthesia. Once a patient has the diagnosis and when they have limited amounts of laryngeal disease that recur, um, we do have the option of treating it in the office. And that's something that usually sort of reserved more for adult patients with RRP rather than uh, uh, pediatric ones. But there are obviously exceptions to that as well. And uh, we won't focus too much on surgical technique, but uh, when you do treat these in the operating room, what sorts of instruments or tools are you using to debride the papillomas? So the basic distinction uh, comes down to using what we call cold instruments versus lasers. And lasers we think of as generating heat, so the opposite would be cold. Um, And the cold instruments are usually either sort of, in this day, micro-debriders, or more rarely, people will actually use just microlaryngoscopic instruments, uh, scissors and suctions and forceps and things like that. The latter doesn't work well for extensive laryngeal disease. So for disease on the vocal folds, some may still default to that. But really, lasers have become a workhorse in treatment of this disease, both in the operating room and in the office. The carbon dioxide laser is sort of very commonly used by some surgeons to treat this disease, yet, of course, has the uh, wavelength that is best absorbed by water. And the uh, other laser that surgeons use is the KTP laser, uh, which has a different target. And so uh, the target of that is actually oxyhemoglobin. Um, And so in that context, because papillomatosis is a disease which requires a blood supply to grow, um, it's become quite popular in managing this disease. But the key thing that sort of has to be remembered, regardless of the surgical instrument that you use, is you want to preserve the normal structures around the disease. And in particular, for disease on the vocal folds, this is an epithelial disease. This does not involve the vibratory layers below the epithelium. So surgery really has to focus on maximally preserving the lamina propria, the superficial layer of the lamina propria, below the vocal fold epithelium. Otherwise, uh, you can end up with uh, permanent hoarseness. And uh, when you do perform some of these procedures in the office, as you mentioned, it's going to be you know primarily an adult patient's but uh, are there any special considerations and what kind of techniques are you using there in the office? Yeah, so the office treatment of papillomatosis is generally done through a flexible laryngoscope with a working channel in it and a laser that's delivered on a flexible fiber. And generally, that means using the KTP laser. Uh, there are obviously flexible fiber CO2 lasers, but the diameter of those fibers isn't small enough, in my understanding, to be used Uh, in the office on a uh, consistent basis. 
So you need to have a patient, obviously, that is able to tolerate an office-based procedure. And, and not every patient is, in my experience. But really, sort of the way the procedure is done is under just topical anesthesia. So um, getting the patient and their larynx and their throat appropriately anesthetized is really key. Um, and then again, trying not to do too much in one setting. There's kind of a limited window that you can treat. I think if you try to get too aggressive in the office, you're often not as successful. So we know that office treatment will not accomplish as much in a given time frame as a surgery would. So the expectation that it's going to sort of change the cadence of the disease may not be a realistic one. But the nice thing about it is that it's not done under general anesthesia. Uh, patients can leave, you know, right after the procedure. It usually takes about 10 minutes. Um, and oftentimes it can increase the interval in between general anesthetics. We know that in this disease, there's a wide variety of the the severity of the disease. And so some patients may only require a handful of surgeries over their lifetimes. Others may require hundreds. And so for those that are sort of requiring many, many surgeries, using an office-based treatment to diminish the uh, need for general anesthesia can be really advantageous and improve their quality of life. And uh, whenever you're using a laser, when you're using it, you know, whether it's in the office or in the operating room, does that pose a risk? Because I would imagine you're vaporizing the virus. And so does you or, you know, all the surgical staff in the room, um, are there any special considerations for that? Yeah, it's a great question. Absolutely, there is some documented risk of viral particles actually being aerosolized in the plume of the smoke that happens after papillomatosis is treated with the laser. Uh, of course, anytime that you use a laser, uh, we also want to think about eye protection. So everybody, whether it's the operating room or for an office procedure, needs eye protection, including the patient. And then the smoke itself from the laser should be um, suctioned away there are masks as well, too, that are deemed laser-safe masks that are less likely to allow those aerosolized uh, viral particles to be inhaled. So use of those masks would be uh, strongly recommended. And what about more aggressive surgical procedures or more invasive, I should, uh, maybe I should say, you know, outside of endoscopic laser or cold steel instrument management? You know, I can imagine the disease progressing to a point of airway problems, as you alluded to. Do we perform tracheostomies uh, as a, uh, a way to bypass that? So generally, we try to avoid them. This becomes more of an issue in pediatric patients because of the smaller diameter of the airways, and so they have less tolerance. And certainly tracheostomies have been performed and probably will continue to be performed uh, for the most severe cases of RRP. But generally, the goal is to try to avoid that. So if that means that you need to increase the frequency of your operative interventions, then that may be sort of a reasonable alternative. There's some evidence that tracheostomies may actually sort of promote more distal spread of the disease. And so in that context, um, again, we'd like to avoid that. There are also cases, particularly with more with malignant transformation of the disease, where sort of uh, more aggressive surgical techniques uh, may be required, whether it's in the larynx or sometimes even in patients, unfortunately, that have a disease that spreads into the pulmonary parenchyma. Um, some of those patients do actually need to undergo open lung surgery. And we've briefly mentioned adjuvant therapies already, and uh, I've read a lot about potential adjuvant therapies. It seems like there's always new ones being studied, but can you talk a little bit about when we start considering adjuvant therapy in these patients in addition to surgery? 
Yeah, there's not sort of what I would say is a great consensus about it, and it probably depends upon what type of adjuvant therapy you're talking about. There are sort of local adjuvant therapies and that there are more systemic ones. So, But in general, sort of people talk about having more than four surgical procedures in a year as potentially an indication for using an adjuvant therapy, or if you find the disease just regrows rapidly, that may be an indication for it. As I said before, if it's spreading distantly and it's in multiple parts of the airway in the trachea and pulmonary parenchyma, that might be an indication for um, considering a more systemic adjuvant therapy. And of the adjuvant therapy options that we have available, what are some of the more promising ones we can highlight for the listener? So there's been a lot of studies of things that people have tried over the years. Um, A lot of them have been intralesional delivery of adjuvant therapies. And I would say the two most popular today of the intralesional class are still sodafavir, which has been used for decades now. And then more recently, bevacizumab, uh, which goes by the trade name of Vastin, has been used intralesionally. You know, in the context of sodafavir, there are studies uh, showing that it improves control of papillomatosis. There is some risk of malignant transformation, although there's been some recent studies, I think, in animal models showing that that uh, seems to be potentially not the case. There's also some concern about scarring related to use of sodafavir, and that also, again, in an animal model has been shown, at least in a porcine model, is my recollection, not to be the case. On the other hand, Avastin is a antibody, and so the studies to date have really shown no evidence of local toxicity or scarring or diminished vibratory capacity of the vocal folds. And sort of the limited literature that's out there seems to suggest a benefit, um, at least in some proportion of the patients. But I would say that neither of these two adjuvant therapies are, you know, home runs. And again, they're just tools to be used um, in a local sense. There are sort of more systemic adjuvant therapies. Um, We talked about Avastin. There is some sort of impressive case reports of patients receiving intravenous Avastin, actually, and having their uh, disease melt away. The problem is that sort of when they stop the Avastin, that the disease can sometimes come back and sometimes come back with a vengeance. And so the endpoint of that isn't really quite clear. Interferon is another uh, medication that's been given systemically, um, but it has significant side effects. And so it's not a perfect treatment either. And we now have an HPV vaccine. And in fact, I think we have a recent expansion of who can get the vaccine. Given the fact that some of the patients who get the disease, you know, get it as neonates in the birth canal, is the vaccine effective at preventing RRP? So the data that we have suggests that it is effective, um, not in the context, obviously, for the uh, neonate who wouldn't be a candidate for the vaccine, but for the maternal transmission of it. So if there is less disease, you know, fewer anogenital warts in the general population, then the risk of vertical transmission from the mother to child goes down. And in fact, there was a study that came out, I think about two years ago, looking at incidence of juvenile onset RRP in Australia. They have a particularly high rate of use of the vaccine in Australia. And what they found from years 2012 to 2016 um, is that they had a population database and found that there were only 15 new cases 
of uh, juvenile onset RRP in the entire country. Um, and that rate had diminished from seven new cases in 2012 uh, down to just one in 2016. So the idea being that the vaccine does have a effect as a preventative strategy. Well, those are kind of all the questions that I had uh, about this disease. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think would be really important for the listener to know? Um, I think we've covered a, a fair amount of what's uh, out there. Um, so I think we're, we're pretty good. Good. Okay. Um, we're going to move on to the summary section. Um, and uh, I'll just kind of summarize some of the key points that we talked about here. So RRP is a disease that typically presents with hoarseness, but the symptoms can be rather nonspecific, especially in the pediatric population. We know that RRP has somewhat of a bimodal distribution in terms of its epidemiology. We have the juvenile form that usually presents in young children, and this form can tend to be pretty aggressive and have a high recurrence rate. Adults can also get the disease, and this usually presents later in life and uh, is the result of sexual transmission. RRP is caused by HPV, otherwise known as the human papillomavirus. In children, again, the transmission is vertical, so that means from the mother to the newborn, and this often occurs at the time of birth. In adults, the virus is transmitted sexually, usually through oral genital contact. The potential for malignant transformation is low, as low as 2%, Even with the lower risk subtypes, it is possible, and it should always be something that is on our differential and carefully scrutinized with exams. On pathology, these lesions usually are, you know, exhibit multiple fronds of finger-like projections with fibrovascular stalks that are covered with stratified squamous epithelium. The natural course of disease can be variable in terms of severity, but in general, without treatment, the disease will continue to progress and the lesions presumably grow larger and higher in number. There's no known cure for RRP, but treatment is directed towards essentially debridement of these lesions with the goals in mind of improving the patient's voice, protecting their airway, and improving their general quality of life. For surgery, some of the common techniques or instruments that are used uh, include the CO2 laser and the KTP laser, as well as some cold steel instruments. Surgical procedures can be done in the operating room as well as in the office. Usually for the first surgical treatment of an RRP lesion that's often done in the operating room, but especially for patients that need to come back for frequent treatment, in-office procedures should certainly be explored and considered. Adjuvant therapy should be considered as well in patients that require many surgical procedures a year or those who have rapid regrowth of the papillomas. Types of adjuvant therapy that we talked about are two main types that are commonly used. And the first is antiviral uh, by the name of sodafovir, and the second is an antibody targeting uh, the inhibition of angiogenesis called bevacizumab or Avastin. And both have shown really promising results when given in an intralesional fashion. Okay, we'll move on to the question session now. So I'm going to be asking Dr. Freeman a few questions uh, to highlight some key points. And I will give the listener about a five-second pause to think about the answer before we give it. So Dr. Freeman, what is the primary age group affected by RRP?
RRP generally has a bimodal distribution, so juvenile onset, and then also adults in their uh, 30s to 40s. What is the primary serotype of HPV that can cause RRP? The primary types of HPV that cause RRP are 6 and 11. What are the goals of surgical management of RRP? The goal of surgical management is to preserve and improve voice and breathing and overall improve quality of life. And finally, what are some commonly used adjuvant therapies for RRP? Commonly used adjuvant therapies for RRP include sodafivir, bevacizumab, also known as Avastin, and interferon. All right, and that's our talk. Thank you so much again for being here. Thank you for having me.